Last weekend, I got to participate in my son's wedding. I did my son's wedding. And so for those of you who are betting on it, here's the outcome. Uh, they did get married. And yes, I did cry a lot. So uh, if, you were, if you were asking, uh, that's exactly what happened. So uh, he did an amazing thing, though. They weren't planning on going on a honeymoon. I asked him a few weeks before. I said, so why aren't you guys going to go on a honeymoon? He said, well, because we're poor. And uh, I was like, that's a good reason. And... Uh, <laughs> and uh, got some money from the wedding. And uh, the very next day they woke up uh, in their new apartment. And he said, where, anywhere in the country you want to wake up tomorrow, where do you want to wake up? She said, New York City. And so they jumped on a flight that day and spent a good portion of the week. I told him, I said, son, that was a boss move. I mean, that was ex- exactly what you should have done. I asked him at the end of the week, I said, how was your first week being married? He said, I'm still learning how to be a husband. And I said, me too. And uh, we're, we're doing great. Hey, let's take a moment and welcome those who are online. We're so glad you guys are with us from all over the country and all over the world. We love you guys. All right, today we are uh, turning a corner right now and uh, we are gonna be talking about the problem of evil today. So for example, why does the world look the way that it looks today? If God is good and powerful, why is that the case? And so we're gonna look at how to fight personal sin in our life. Because I think when we talk about sin generically or we talk about evil generically, it really doesn't have a whole lot of relevance. We can go, oh yeah, yeah, of course, there's some evil in the world. But how does that work as we interact with it? How does it work as we try to root out things in our life? So let's take a look at this passage. It's the passage is the uh, passage of the parable of the sower. Uh, and we're gonna look at this. There is a first part of it that we're gonna talk about and there's a interpretation of it that Jesus gives. So I wanna encourage you to go home and look and continue in chapter 13 and just read the interpretation. I'm gonna bring the interpretation to the actual text itself. Here we go. Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell, you the, har- I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. All right, well, let's go back to verse um, 24 and let's take a look at this in closer detail. It starts with Jesus saying, you know, there, there's this parable that I want to tell you, the kingdom of heaven is like. So we've been talking about a, this series that we're doing, it's the kingdom. And uh, in this series, we're, Jesus is giving a bunch of analogies that the kingdom of God is like a certain thing. And what he's trying to show is that if you're a real follower of Jesus, if you're a true follower, and this is talking about true followers versus not true followers, but if you're a true follower of Jesus, you belong to an alternative kingdom, that you're not just an American, that you're not just this, that you're not just that. You actually are first and foremost a follower of Jesus inside his kingdom, which is in this world. And so what does that kingdom look like and how does it look different than the world around us? So the first thing that you need to see is that this parable is being told by Jesus. It's on the Sea of Galilee, and he's sitting in a boat just a few you know, yards off, the, off, the, off in the water, and he's sitting in a boat, and there are hundreds of people who've come to hear what Jesus has to say that day. Now, Jesus is going to tell them this parable, but then later, he's going to go to a house by himself with the disciples, and the disciples are going to ask the question, Jesus, what, did you, what were you talking about? Like that parable that you said, we didn't understand that at all. Can you give us the interpretation? And then he goes to do that. But the first thing I want you to see, and I want to ask a question up on, up on the screen, this question, what is Jesus trying to accomplish by telling these stories? What is Jesus trying to accomplish by telling these stories? So let's make a distinction right now between fables and, and parables. Fables are imaginary stories 
um, designed to communicate some kind of moral. One of the great, uh, most famous fables was Aesop's fables, right? And this is designed by parents to teach kids how to be wise and to have certain virtues in their life. And it was stories designed for children. Parables are not that. They're not the same thing as fables. They are actually designed for a whole different purpose. Up on the screen. Parables are designed to reveal or hide or hide a heavenly principle that is supposed to be lived out here on earth. Okay, so why did Jesus hide the kingdom of God from some people and give it to others? Well, first it had to do with all the expectations that people had on Jesus's life. You see, there was an entire narrative that was developed around the coming of the Messiah, that ultimately he was coming to set them free. But what they thought they were being set free from was not the same thing Jesus wanted to set them free from. So this narrative basically was that when the Messiah comes, he's probably going to be some great general that's going to liberate us. We're going to start a war. We're we're going to fight against the government and we're going to create a nation state unto ourselves. Or maybe he'll just become a politician. He'll be really wise and then navigate us out of the Roman empire. But that's actually not what Jesus did. So as people were watching watching Jesus and they were seeing him perform these incredible miracles and all of these things were happening, people were going, well, why isn't he trying to overthrow the government? And why isn't he trying to uh, you know, become a politician? Because he didn't seem to have any interest in politics or any interest in overthrowing the government. So what was happening? So people were asking this question, like what was going on here? And so what Jesus would do sometimes is he would hide the kingdom of God from some people and express it to other people. So wh- why would he try to hide it? I mean, isn't that a good thing, the kingdom of God? It is. But what you need to understand is what Jesus understood. And that is that the kingdom of God, that everybody who hears the kingdom of God is not ready for the kingdom of God when they hear it. So for example, um, I gave this illustration two weeks ago, but um, I'm gonna apply it in a different direction. When I was a kid, my father used to buy a brand new car every year or every other year. And we go to a luxury automobile dealership up on 1792, the Audi and BMW place. And we go up there and, and I bought a car not long ago uh, and, and it was delightful. The experience was amazing. I just walked onto the lot and, and, I, and they're like, this is the price of the car. And I was like, great, okay, good. But my dad was like, I want you to come with me and I want you to go to the dealership with me. I'm like five, six, seven years old, right? And he says, I want you to go with me to the dealership because I want you to see what it's like to haggle and to bargain with somebody to get your way. I was like, okay, cool, good lesson. But when we go there, and most of you are way too young for this to remember this, so just trust me. But when you used to go to a car lot back in the, like the 1970s, there were like 13 guys standing outside the front door and they're all smoking cigarettes and they're waiting for somebody to come, right? And so you drive on the lot and they're following behind you. And so as soon as you get there, the guy opens the door for you. He's like, hey, sir, good to see you again, Mr. Adkins. And I'm like five, six years old. I'm thinking, like, you don't, you don't care about us. This isn't a real relationship. This is not a thing. Like, you just want to extract something from us. How can I do, what can I do to get you in this car today? I think the reason why Jesus hid the kingdom of God from some people is because that's exactly what it feels like for someone like me that grew up outside the church and someone like you to, to come at me with the gospel and try to get me into Jesus in that moment. It feels a little used car-like for me. It feels, like, it feels like you don't really care about me. You're just trying to get me into a Jesus today. Like you have a quota to try to solve, to try to get me in, right? And so that doesn't feel right. So what Jesus is doing, is, and this is why in the parables, you'll see him use this phrase over and over again. It was in the parable from last week at the very end. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. In other words, if you're ready to hear and you're ready to see, I'll make the kingdom known to you. But for some of you, you're not ready. And so what happens, because some of you are in this 
situation right now. You're like, I don't know. I mean, I was brought here by my friends. I don't know. They, they said, come listen to the cool music. Come listen to the really handsome preacher. Like, come, like, do, like, do, like do this thing. It would be great. But you're in there. You're going, I don't know what I really believe about God. I'm not sure what I believe about. And our job, our job, like this is our mission statement, helping people take their next step toward Christ. Our job is not to try to get you into something today. Our job is to help you take your next step so that you, just like many of us, will fall in love with Jesus and give your whole entire life to him. I'm not hiding that. That's, that's our goal for you. But sometimes you know what the job for you is? Just showing up again next week. Because it's a hard thing to show up at a place. And, and for those of us who are insiders, we need to realize when someone shows up to church, it's because they have a deep desire for something spiritual. It's a hard thing to walk into a group of people that you don't know, especially with ideas behind the circumstance, behind uh, the church that they don't even know. We speak different languages in the church. So Jesus... He was appropriating this in a way that was helpful for the people who were listening. So anyone that wanted to know more, he would tell more. Verse 24 again, go back to verse 24. Any day. Verse 24, I'll read it up here. Here we go. Verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. Okay, and so, so here's what's happening. The man who sows the seed is God in the story. And so when it says it's like the kingdom of God is like this, where he sowed a good, so the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. The idea of the good seed goes all the way back to the creation story. It harkens all the way back to the moment of creation. When God creates the entire universe, not just our planet, but the entire universe, the Bible says that he speaks ex nihilo. That's Latin for out of nothing. He speaks, there's nothing that in existence, but God, because of the word of his power, he speaks the entire universe and bang, everything comes, right? In that moment, there is everything that exists today. And as God surveys everything that exists today, he looks at it and he goes, this is really good. Now, what is he saying when he says this is good? He says, it's functioning exactly the way that I want it to, to, to function. It is exactly what I need for it to be or want it to be. So the beautiful thing about that is that when we pull back all the sin and all the messiness of life, underneath all of that, watch this, this is so important because some of you have such a negative view of the world and such a negative view of your life. Underneath all of the stuff at the very beginning of creation, God looks at it all and he says, this is good. The fundamental nature of reality itself is the goodness that God created in the world. The problem with the goodness today is that the goodness has been vandalized. And when something's vandalized, it becomes less beautiful and less glorious and less reflective of what it was originally meant to be. So verse 25 and here's where the vandalization takes place. Vandalizing takes place. Verse 25, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now, anybody in the first century listening to Jesus tell his story would be like, oh, that guy, that guy's terrible. We know that guy. This is, this is corporate espionage. Very first act of it ever. This is what's happening. You got a market, you got two guys. You got a market, you got one market, two guys. They both plant wheat. One guy sneaks into the other guy's field in the middle of the night and he starts taking ryegrass, right? Darnell, right? Ryegrass. And he starts spreading the seed everywhere where the guy put the weed or, or the wheat. So he's spreading weeds and weeds and weeds. And here's the thing. You can't tell the difference of the wheat seed and the ryegrass seed. It looks very much the same. In fact, the weird thing about it is as it grows, it looks the same all the way up until the moment it matures. And then it looks very different. Many of you have seen this that have children because like when I, my kids were young and they were like four or five, six years old, uh, they just hung out with anyone and everyone. Why? Because it, there's really not a whole lot of differences between kids at that age. 
Like, we're just like, let's have fun. I accept you. I accept you. We're let's have fun. Let's be, it's just beautiful. Everything's great. Let's learn. Let's, I mean, it's awesome. But like when they turn 10 and everything goes south, right? Like fifth grade, sixth grade, somewhere around that time. What happens is some of you suddenly realize that the kids that your kids have always been hanging out with because they're maturing, they've looked just like your kids for a long time. They have similar values. It's just be nice and kind of get along and everything's good. We're just kids. But then like sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, that kind of stuff, people start becoming their own person, right? So different values express themselves in different ways. So now you're looking at your kids and you're looking at the kids that they've always hung out with. And you're going, I don't like some of the values that I'm seeing expressed in some of their lives. And some of you took, made, took steps to be able to say, I don't think you should hang out with this person anymore. Why? Because the wheat and the weeds look very similar for a long time. And he's saying the kingdom of God is just like this. Inside the church, the kingdom of God, there are people who look just like us. They look like they're believers. They do some of the same things that we do. But at the end of the day, as they mature, I have this phrase that I use around here, time and truth run hand in hand. As time goes on, they will reveal to you who they really are, their true character. And guys, just a point of wisdom. When, when someone shows you their true character, don't make excuses for them. Just believe what they've showed you. Because it's not about what a person says, it's about what a person does and who they are. And so Jesus is saying that there's this enemy that comes along and he starts sowing weeds among the wheat. So if you are wheat, if you're a follower of Jesus, the wheat represents followers of Jesus, and weeds represent people who are imitating that or pretend, there are some weeds in our lives that need to be plucked out. But here's the thing, I want you to realize there is an enemy. Now, I think for some of you, you look at that and you go, hold on a second, what do you mean by that? Well, again, we're Christians, and so we believe in spiritual realities. We don't believe that we just live in a material universe in which everything that we see is the only thing that exists. I mean, that seems somewhat obvious when we look at things like on a microscopic level that you can't see with your eyes. Just everything we see with our eyes is not everything that exists. There's a whole world that's invisible to us, both in the natural world, but also in the spiritual world. And so there is, according to Jesus, an enemy. And this enemy seeks to destroy you. For uh, Peter, the, one of the apostles, he describes this enemy to us. And, and I think there are like two errors when we start thinking about our, our enemy, Satan. There is one error, which is giving him way too much power and thinking he's more important than he actually is. And then number two is giving him no power and thinking he's not important at all. Both of these things are great platforms that Satan uses to infiltrate and be a part of our lives. First Peter 5.8 describes it like this. He says, hey, I want you Christians to be alert. Be alert and of sober mind, that's clear thinking. Your enemy, the devil, prowls. What is prowling? Have you ever seen a lion in the Serengeti where they, you've know, got the tall weeds and you've got that nice little gazelle? He's like, doo, 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 doo. you know, and he's just kind of hanging out and he's just kind of like walking through. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see that, that lion and she's sneaking down on the ground and she's kind of moving through and then bam, she pounces. This is the imagery that he's using. That the gazelle has no idea. They're just going around their life. And then in a moment's notice, with no notice sometimes. That lion is on that gazelle. And that's the end for the gazelle. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. The word devour here means to consume, to destroy, and to kill. And so what Jesus is saying in a very practical way for us is that the devil is seeking to kill, destroy, and consume, kill, and destroy you. He wants to kill and to consume and destroy your business, your family, your friends, your children, and everything. 
there is only one power that he has to do that with. And I'm going to show you what it is in a second. But I want you, I want you to realize that, that to be unaware of this, to not be clear thinking about this, leaves you open to attack in a way that many of us have felt before. So the one challenge that he has, the one power that he has over us, get rid of the movies in your head, okay? Like I've seen The Exorcist, awesome movie. Terrible theology. You're not gonna be picked up by the devil and thrown against the wall. I've been doing this for 30 something years, never seen it once. That's not to mean that there aren't spiritual realities. It's just most likely you and I are not that important. I mean, like, like Lucifer's going to hang out with you? He's like, no, I'm cool. I got you already, you know? All right, so, so watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. So that's not likely to happen, but what will happen is the one great power that Lucifer has is he has the ability to lie. And he has the ability to put inside your head and inside your heart all kinds of lies about yourself, about the world, and about God. This is what happened in the garden, and it's the same tools that he's using right now to this very day. So, so, but, but we're not at his power. We're not, we're not at his mercy, in other words. Verse nine says it like this. Peter, again, he says, resist him. In other words, push back on him. You don't, you, you don't have to do what he says. You don't have to be influenced in this way. You don't have to believe these lies. We can resist these lies. And he says we do so by standing firm in the faith. In other words, my job is not to try to figure out all the wrong things in my life, but to press into the right things in Jesus. Did you see that? Because it, it is a huge difference in the way that some of you fight evil in your life. Some of us fight evil by simply trying to stop doing bad things. He says here, no, resisting him is standing firm in the faith because you know that all the other people, all the other Christians all over the world are going through the same things that you're going through. This is what Peter wants you to know. Your struggles are not unique. There are other Christians going through them. And guess what? They are resisting. And that means so can you. And the way that we resist, by standing firm in our faith, we press into what God has for us. That's the way we'll do it. We'll explain that more in just a second. Verse 10 says this, and when you do that, when you resist him, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So a couple of things I want you to see about this that he says and it doesn't say. It doesn't say that when you resist him, the devil will flee immediately, and after that, it's hashtag blessed life. <laughs> it, it, that's not what he's saying. And, and, I, and the reason why I want you to know that is because I want you to know that because when he doesn't run away, when you resist him right away, it doesn't mean you failed. It just means that there's more to do. And the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a while, why does he want us to suffer a little while? I don't know that he wants us to suffer a while, but I think there's a purpose for suffering in this. And that is suffering changes the way that we see pain in our life. If you've been a person who's been in great pain in your life and you have struggled deeply in your life, then one of the things that you know about that is that it's made you a harder person, a stronger person. Because what's happened is after you suffer for a while, God's gonna restore you. And how is he gonna restore you? He's gonna do this. He's gonna make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Strong, firm, and steadfast. So what that means is that it's not likely that God's going to take away all the pain in your life. He may take away this pain and that pain because he's gracious. But what he'll most likely do is make you strong, He'll make you firm and he'll make you steadfast in such a way that the same pain that used to be right here is now here. Why? Because you're stronger. You're not worried about it because God's made you different. Matthew 13, 25 says it like this. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the, meat, uh, among the wheat and went away. 
So here we've got, we've got the enemy, he comes in, he sowed the wheat among the, the, the wheat, and then he went away. He left it there in order to grow along with the wheat. Matthew 13, 26 says this, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. So it wasn't until the wheat was uh, growing and maturing and the ryegrass growing and maturing that you began to see the differences. But here's the problem. Once the ryegrass was fully grown, it began to choke out the weed. And so as a result, what's happening is when we let people who are weeds in our life continue in our life that way, when time and truth run hand in hand and we see who they are, but yet we continue to walk with them in that way, what ends up happening is they begin to choke out the life of us, the spiritual life. So when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him, sir, didn't you sow good seed in the field? So look at this. This is an accusation that the, so the owner again is God and the people who are coming them to, the, to, to God and asking this question are like us. And I'll show you in a second, right? Sir, didn't you sow good seed in the, in the field? In other words, look, I'm looking at the world right now, God, and it doesn't seem like it's good. You're all powerful and you're good, and yet the world seems terrible. I thought you made the world good. That's the accusation. Sir, didn't you sow good seed? Where then did all the trouble come from? And this is a question that, that people ask all the time. Like, why if the world was created good, is there all kinds of trouble? Well, Jesus tells us with what we just saw. Somebody came in, not him, an enemy came in and he started planting weeds and the weeds sometimes have choked out the wheat and it also made the field look terrible. What's happened? It's been vandalized. It's been diminished. It's been destroyed. Now, now the kingdom has not been destroyed, but the reputation of the kingdom, we'll talk about in a second, has been diminished. We'll talk about that in a second. But what I want you to see is that ultimately, watch this. Ultimately, so when he asks the question, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where does it come from? It doesn't come from God. It comes from us. It comes from the world and it comes from Satan. And so let me show you what that looks like. Up on the screen, I'm going to use something from uh, Augustine. Augustine was an African bishop 1,600 years ago. He's one of the smartest theologians in all the history of the church. And this is what Augustine did. This is his way of understanding. He creates a syllogism to understand the problem of evil. It'll make sense for you, I promise. Here we go. First, number one, all things that God created are good. We've already talked about that. We've established that fact that when God looked at creation, he said it's good. Evil is not good. Therefore, evil was not created by God. So one of the things that you need to know is that Augustine wants to separate the idea of evil and God as being the author of evil. He's like, it's not the author. He's, not, he's the author of what is good. And therefore, Satan is not good, and therefore, he is not the author of evil. Now, second, look at this. God created everything. God did not create evil. Therefore, evil is not a thing. Now, now what I want you to see is the first one, like the second one right there, number one, God created everything. What he means is he spoke everything to, into existence. Everything that exists, exists because God made it. But number two, God did not create evil because he's good. And what you need to know is believe that in your heart because God will never act evilly towards you. He can't. It's not in his nature. It's not who he is. But number three, therefore, evil is not a thing. He's not saying evil doesn't exist. What he's saying is evil has no existence of its own. All it is is the vandalizing of the good. So when I uh, go to Ohio and I see my brother, <laughs> his cars are just trashed. Not because he's poor but his cars are terrible. Like I, I walk up to his bumper uh, on the back on the side of his bumper 
and I can literally take the metal and I can just crumble it in my hands because why? If you grew up in the North. That's right, salt. That's exactly right, salt. So they salt the roads all over the place and it, cars just don't last nearly as long. Now, now think about this for a second. When his car was originally created by the manufacturer, it was exactly what it was supposed to be. Manufacturer specifications, good. It was able to roll off the assembly line. It performed its function really well. But there was something, salt, that got on that bumper and began to rust it in such a way that what was once strong and powerful and whole became diminished and easily destroyed. Why? Because it was vandalized by the salt. See, watch this. There's no such thing as, there's no such thing as rust apart from metal. There's no such thing as evil apart from good. But there is such a thing as good apart from evil. Why? Because the fundamental nature of reality is that everything is good and beautiful. But what happens is everything that is good and beautiful has been vandalized by Satan, has been vandalized by wickedness, been vandalized by evil, so it doesn't rep- represent what it originally looked like. This is why people look at the world sometimes and they go, well, if God's good and he's all powerful, why does the world exist the way that it wor- exists? Because something beautiful given to us was destroyed by us and vandalized. And so now when you look at it, you go, oh my gosh, it doesn't look like what it was supposed to be. We don't even look like what we were supposed to be because we have been vandalized by sin as well. So let's make it real practical. Let's talk about something like pornography. I don't think God's people are looking for the wrong thing, but I think we're finding what we're looking for in the wrong things. So take pornography as an example. I mean, I've, I, honestly, guys, I mean, every guy I know has struggled with it at one point or another. And the statistics bear that out. By the way, it's increasingly becoming more and more of a female thing as well. And you go, well, so like, what's the sin here? Like, what's the problem with this? Some of you who may be here today, just like, what's the big deal? No big deal. So underneath it, underneath pornography is a good thing. You go, well, how is there a good thing underneath pornography? It's such a, it's so, like, why would you, what, what is good about that? Here's what's good about it underneath. There is the desire inside the human heart, both for Christians and non-Christians, to connect to something beautiful. The desire for connection. The desire to be desired. They're all good things, but it's been vandalized. It no longer looks or serves its original purpose of love. You see, because connection and intimacy and love and sexuality, all of these things were created by God for the good of his people. But in the context of a relationship where there is safety and security and commitment, where one will work for the good of the other, always, till death do us part. But in pornography, it's cheap, it's easy, it's ugly. When somebody looks at pornography, they're not caring for another person. They're consuming the other person. And Satan prowls around looking for those to devour. And it's devoured hearts and lives. So, so if we take what Augustine's talking about, that there's really no such thing as evil on its own, that it's just this like veneer over something beautiful and good, you can spend the rest of your life trying to battle pornography and say, I just need to be a better person and stop doing this. And that will never win. You'll never win. Instead, what we do is we start pressing into the deeper things. Do you know the treatment around pornography ultimately deals with connecting with your wife or your husband or connecting significantly with someone else? It is the desire. The desire's not wrong. 
It's just that it landed on an object that is not worthy of you. Pornography is cheap. Materialism is the same way. Materialism is, the, is a beautiful, like it's a beautiful thing to want to be provided for. God is a God of provision. One of his names is Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. And as the provider, ultimately God is the one who is like, I will, if you trust me with your life, I will always work for your good. Trust me. But materialism is not about money. It's not about digital tokens. It's not about any of that stuff. What it is, is about the things that those things represent. Power, security, safety, surety. That's what it is. But ultimately, we're not supposed to find our hope in material things because I know a lot of people who have acquired massive amounts of wealth and they're no happier than people who don't. Why? Because it's not a bad desire. It just landed on the wrong thing. Instead, what do we do? Just try to just give all your money away? No, maybe. But, but, but here's, here's the better course. The better course is to say, how can I trust God more? I came up with the phrase around here, money is never about money. It's always about trust because of this. When you are afraid to give, it's because you don't believe the Father will give back. And I don't mean in some prosperity gospel, bad version of theology. I mean that we trust the Lord. I've had more, I have more now than I've ever had. But when we first got married, I had nothing. I mean, we had to like literally figure out, I mean, ramen was like a staple at our house, right? And, but, but here's what we had to do. In those moments, we had to say, Lord, I trust you. I trust that this dollar will go this far. And ultimately the dollar really should have only gone this far, but he made it go this far somehow, some way. And my life was just one day at a time, trusting that the Lord was gonna provide, that he is Jehovah Jireh, that he really is who he says he is. The sin of materialism is not money. The sin of materialism is lack of trust in God. Do you see how this works? So you can spend your whole life trying to get your money straight, and that's fine, you should be responsible. But, but at the end of the day, the bigger issue is, do I trust God? Do I trust God sexually that he's going to be able to provide for me what I need in an environment that I need that's for my good and for his name? Do I trust that all the money that I have and all the stuff that I have or power that I'm gonna possess down the road, can I use that for his purposes? Or are they just for me? Will I hoard what I have because I'm trying to protect myself because I don't trust God? You see, it's not that your desires are bad underneath all of what we're talking about. It's just that your desire landed on something small and unworthy of you or of God. Matthew 13, 28, he's asking the question, where did the weeds come from? Verse 28, an enemy did this. Jesus replies, He's like, I didn't do this. The Father didn't do this. The Holy Spirit didn't do this. These weeds, they come because there was an enemy who planted them. And so the servants ask a really smart question. The people in the church ask a really smart question. Okay, so there are weeds among us. Should we try to go and pull them up? He says, no, no, why? Because while you're pulling up some of the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. So what does this mean? This is what it means. I don't know when it happened. It's been like the last 40 or 50 years, but the church, and this is, by the way, has not been the way the history of the church has unfolded, but for like the last 40 or 50 years, Christians have become the moral police of the world. So if you're on social media and people are joking around, watching a, watching a comedian, watching something online that, that somebody's making jokes about, you'll get some random Christian who will pop in John 3.16 on there. And you're just like, what are you doing? Like, it's not, not even what we're talking about, right? It's so weird. Why? 
Because John 16 is wrong? No, but, but the context is wrong for it, right? I mean, imagine just having a conversation where you're not talking about anything like that and someone goes, hey, what about Jesus? It doesn't make sense. So, so, so he's, they're asking the question, hey, God, the world looks weird right now. There's a lot of weeds in it right now. Some bad things are happening. So as the church, do you want us to go pull these suckers up? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Why? Because while you're out there trying to be the moral police of everyone else, you're going you're to uproot some wheat. How's that happen in our world? People look at us now and they think we're just judgmental and condemning. And we, and we have literally uprooted our own selves. Guys, can I just say this? I don't look around Grace Church and see a bunch of judgmental people. I don't. But unfortunately, people looking from the outside look at the church and they look at the church as a broad thing, not as individual churches. And they see that our reputation has been damaged. And so our job is not to go pulling up the weeds. Our job is to be the wheat. Look, look, look how he finishes this whole thing off. He says it like this. Instead, he recommends this, verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. The harvest is the end of the age. So let the wheat and the weeds live together until I return. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, the angels, collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. There is this final separation. There's a final separation at the end of all things. When God comes back and says, and we don't know when that's gonna be, but if he returned today or 10,000 years from now, there'll be a day where he says, all of time is now done. Creation has ended. And he's gonna create a new heaven and a new earth. But why does he take some of these and burn them up? And why does he take some and keep them in his barn? He does so because if we're gonna ever live in a world, heaven or the new earth, we're gonna live in a society where there is no more evil, there can be no more weeds. Because when you have a weed here, it's there and then it's there and then it's there. Weeds don't stay in one spot. So he'll destroy that. And some of you go like, well, why hasn't he done it already? This is a common complaint. Like, why hasn't God done it? Like, does it not see the terrible things that are happening? What about Turkey? All those terrible things that like tens of thousands of people dead. Well, God, why don't you fix that right now? Here's the answer to that. For 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And the idea behind this essentially is this. He's like, I'm waiting for the day in which every person who will receive me will receive me. I'm waiting every single day for that. Now, what that means for us is that every day Jesus doesn't return is a day for our family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers to accept Christ, to take that first step toward Christ. The reason why he has not destroyed everything and just been done with this, this world that's filled with weeds today is because he loves you and he loves your family. And he's trying to work all the way to the very end to say, I'll do everything that I can to make it as clear as possible that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Father, thank you so much that uh, in the fight against evil, you don't leave us defenseless. Lord, we can resist, but Father, may our focus not be on the symptoms of the problem, but may it be on the actual root causes. We are not connected. We are lonely and isolated sometimes. And we need more of you. And frankly, we need more of each other. 
Lord, let our desires, which you created that are beautiful and good, not land on something that is unworthy of us or of you. Let us not invest in things that are just temporary in this life, but things that will last forever and ever and ever in your kingdom and for your glory. Amen.